invite you to come with me to the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews 11, we'll read verses 8 through 22. Hebrews 11, 8 through 22. <clears throat> By faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Jacob, Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared for them a city. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Abraham invoked, excuse me, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Grant to us now, Father, your promise be fulfilled, that the word would bear fruit, that it would lead to the salvation of those who do not know you, that it would lead to the greater sanctification of those who do, that the discouraged would be encouraged today, that the hurting would be helped, that all of us, Father, would be joyfully thankful that you have spoken. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. This fellow goes to the racetrack. Last race of the day, he sees a priest blessing a horse. So he takes all the cash he has and he bets on that horse. What he didn't realize until it was too late is he was mistaking last rites <laughs> for a blessing. 
Sometimes we misconstrue what we see, what we take in. We look back this morning, not as far back as we did last time. Last time, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, which addressed the ancient faithful who are described in the early chapters of Genesis, that is chapters 1 through 11. Now the author turns to the balance, if you will, of the book of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50, by addressing Abraham primarily, but along with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, and Joseph. And so my question is this, what comes to your mind as you think about these characters, the patriarchs, the name actually, the title Father Rulers? Do you wonder what their lives were like? Do you ponder the question of how they lived and how they believed? Do you make the mistake, I think, far too often that is made by many believers that somehow these guys had an advantage over us? I mean, it looks like on the pages of Scripture that God's talking to Abraham on a weekly basis, more or less, at least every other month or so. And then it begins to dawn on you when you pay attention to the timing that Abraham hears from God something like four times in the space of 20 to 25 years. My friend, never for a moment think that trading the word of God you hold in your hand for what the patriarchs had would be a good trade. It would not. What you have before you is for your encouragement. Now, it is not that there are not things we can learn here. Obviously, there are. Otherwise, they'd not be included in the text of Scripture. And there are times, I think, we turn these uh, Old Testament believers, these patriarchs, into something of a plaster saint. That is, they just actually pretty close to perfect. I mean, they weren't Jesus perfect, but they were really close to perfect. And I'm here to tell you, folks, if you read the text carefully, what you find is they weren't even close. These people were a mess. I mean, latter chapters of Genesis would make a brilliant TV miniseries of a soap opera sort. These folks had problems. You see, my friend, the faithful believer takes God at his word, lives in that word, but he doesn't live it perfectly because he can't live it perfectly. And I want to encourage you, Christian, you may think you're not doing a good job at this. And may I encourage you in this way, you're probably not the best judge of that. You're too close to it. Also be careful of others who make assessments because they're not close enough either. I'm, I'm always intrigued by the words of the Apostle Paul in Corinthians when he says, I care very little whether I'm judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. That doesn't make me guiltless. I will wait, and I'm paraphrasing here, I will wait for the assessment of the Lord. Rather than spending so much time in self-assessment, how about we just get on with it? Do what is before us to do. Now, what do we find here? Well, I, I would say, I put this in two sections. Verses 8 to 16 and 17 to 22. 
Verses 8 to 16, the patriarch's faith, looking for a city. And we begin with Abraham, who obeys. Now, you could almost call this faith's tenacity. He's renting a rider truck, and he's going to the land of promise. He's never been there. He's never seen it. But he's going. And in the early chapters of Genesis, chapters 12 and following, we read of Abram. He lives in the 18th century B.C. He was in the city of Ur, Ur of the Chaldees, on the Euphrates in what is today southern Iraq. A fairly advanced civilization of the time, particularly with education in the areas of math and writing, intriguing architecture, including ziggurats, that, uh, these step-tiered pyramids, oftentimes three-level ziggurats that were to their uh, pagan gods. In fact, there was one that not only had the three tiers, but the top room was made out of solid silver in, in the interior. They committed human sacrifices as well. And yet this Abram obeys when the Lord tells him to move. The outward expression of inward faith. Never lose sight, my friend, that this is what James is driving at. Oftentimes folks want to make a conflict between James and Paul. And we read the text responsibly today from Romans, the fourth chapter, that Abraham is justified by faith. And then you read in the book of James in the second chapter where he says Abraham was justified by his works and people automatically get all a flutter that there was somehow a conflict. But it misses the point that Paul and James are looking at this from two different perspectives, trying to prove two different points. Paul is addressing the reality that justification is solely by grace through faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. James is addressing people who are calling themselves Christians but whose lives have no reflection at all that they belong. And so he, rather than citing the text that Paul cites, he goes all the way to the 22nd chapter of Genesis and talks about how you and I see Abraham's faith. How do we see it? He was willing to sacrifice his son at the very command of God. Faith always produces works. Abraham lived like a nomad. All the property the man ever owned was a cave where he buried his wife. He was different from those around him. He was a monotheist. He didn't have many gods. He had one god. He was a moral, ethical man, while showing he was at times also a weak man. And Isaac and Jacob, his descendants, very much the same. And the author tells us, he was looking for a city, seeking a homeland. Wow. A city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, or whose designer and builder. In fact, fascinating, the word designer there is the word we get technology from. 
technetes. God has designed a city. Now, I know some of you, the minute I talk about city, you get all antsy and uncomfortable because I'm a country person. I want to live on a farm. I don't like cities. Well, friend, let me let you on a little secret. You'll like this one. And bear in mind why it was such a big deal. In that day, to live out on your own as a nomad was dangerous. If you didn't have a very large clan, you were subject to others around you who were lawless and dangerous. It was hard to have a sense of home whenever you're always moving. So the thought of city was that of security and a place to go. This city designed and built by God, a forever city, a place of fellowship and establishment. Ultimately, what you and I know from the book of Revelation is the image of the new Jerusalem, what God has prepared for his people. Faith's tenacity is going to a land that he would never himself own, believing God would still do what he said he would do, while he at the same time, knowing he would never have it, his descendants would, but he had something better. And he looked forward to that city. How about faith's audacity? Decorating a nursery for the promised son on your social security retirement. We read it in Romans, the fourth chapter. Very much similar to here in Hebrews 11. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And here not only the patriarch, verses 11 and 12, but further the matriarch, Sarah. Now, at the time of conception, Abraham is 99, Sarah is 90. This is the kind of stuff that would end up on the blurbs of, you know, those rags that they sell at the grocery stores you're walking out, right? Um, 99-year-old husband, 90-year-old wife, have a baby. You don't usually see senior citizens at childbirth classes. George Sweeting, associated with the Moody Bible Institute long ago, in defining optimism, said optimism is an 85-year-old man marrying a 35-year-old woman and moves into a 12-bedroom house next to an elementary school. The author of Hebrews goes a step further. A 99-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife believe God for a child and their offspring fill the whole earth. Now, oftentimes I hear Sarah get a really bad rap. Sarah laughed. Well, folks, read the text closer. She was not the only one. Uh, Genesis 17, 17. When Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then in chapter 18, verse 12, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, brethren, can we all admit the glorious sense of humor 
in redemption by our God. This is meant for us to go, what? It's designed that way. And I think it's designed for us to have a smile as we ponder it. God does the extraordinary, and while their faith was not perfect, their faith was genuine. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't require your faith to be perfect before he saves you? Or works in your life. Isn't it a grand thing that he doesn't expect you to get every single thing right before he acts? Otherwise, God never acts because we never get it all right. Not once. It's also a reminder, and I'd say this as we are around the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and thankfully it's renunciation in a post-Roe world, but you know what we're discovering? Isn't it sad? What we're discovering is the culture of death is far deeper, more pervasive than we actually anticipated. And we ought to be so careful how we think, brothers and sisters, about this. Al Mohler in his Hebrews commentary about this text says this, Most people never stop to consider the theological implications behind the reality that each and every conception of a baby is the inauguration of a new human life, a new image bearer of God. The Bible tells us that conception is not merely an act of biology which conveys two important implications we ought to consider. Number one, there are no accidental births. Can I say that again? There are no accidental births. Every human being is made in the image of God and comes to life because God says, let there be life. Second, there are no naturalistic births. Scripture speaks of God opening the womb. God is ultimately sovereign even over the conception of children. And we ought never lose sight of that. But here we go. Now I know this is anachronistic, but it kind of sets the tone. Abraham's pension plays, pays for playpens, pampers, and pediatricians. And their descendants, we know from the rest of the text of Scripture, includes us. We are Abraham's descendants. Faith makes you audacious to believe the impossible. This faith's capacity... Renting in bad when you've got a promise of a great home. Living as a sojourner isn't too bad a deal when you know there's something better waiting. These died in faith, verse 13, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they'd have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, that imagery of sojourner, wouldn't you know, gets carried over in the New Testament. Alien. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, or Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I almost feel like we ought to have those two texts read every Sunday from now through November. How often do we confess that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are sojourners and aliens here, but we want to live like lords and masters and controllers? My friend, if the church can thrive under Nero, the church will do just fine no matter who wins in November. Now, if you can't say amen to that, your God is pitiful. They didn't receive all that was promised. Kind of like a sailor looking out and saying, land ho, they could see it. When you admit you're an alien, it's easier to look ahead. Abraham looks for this eschatological city, a future that includes the restoration of all things. And folks, if this isn't true, do you understand? We've no place to go. All of this is a lie. And, and, and folks, and it, there's, there's a tension here, I think, that we ought to have. I, 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 I love the idea of home. In fact, I love the, not just the idea, I love the reality. There's a place I've lived in long enough that I pretty much know everything about it. Now, occasionally it surprises me, more specifically, whoever built the house. I'd really like to sit down and talk with him. Because some things absolutely confuse me. That said, home. Now, I used to laugh at people who were the age I am now, who didn't seem to much like spending the night somewhere else. I don't laugh at them anymore. They were right. <laughs> Ain't no bed out there as comfortable as my own bed. And I already know the sounds and the noises in my own house, and so they don't bother me. I sleep somewhere else, and every noise is like, what was that? At least what I can hear anymore. <laughs> the lighting is different. The smells are different. And the orientation is different. I mean, I am so much a creature of habit, I sleep on a particular side of the bed and have for years, I'm not sure I can do anything else. But you know, even with that concept, and I think there's something right in that. I don't think that's something bad, I actually think it's something good. There's a sense of refuge and comfort in having home. I want that for my children. I want them to have homes that they enjoy, but I also want them to look at the place where they grew up and say, I remember that place. I'm connected to that place. I want that for my grandchildren, Lord willing. But brothers and sisters, no matter how much we long for that, enjoy that, thank God for it, praise Him for the blessing if He's granted us that, they are all temporary accommodations. And what that doesn't depress me, that actually invigorates me. Because I'm headed to a place that is more home than the home I have now or I've ever had here. And that home never ends and never goes away. And I never have to have a talk with the fellow who built it. 
about his failures. Because the builder and designer is God. And do you lay hold of what he says there at the end of that 16th verse? Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. God's not ashamed to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Dare I say this? I am the God of Doug Shivers. Right? And you put your name in there, right? If you're his. In fact, what does the scripture tell us? That he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we're in Christ, he is our Father too. And he is not the least bit ashamed to claim us. Hmm. So the patriarch's faith was a faith of looking to the future, looking for a city. But secondly, it was this, the patriarch's faith was a succession to that promise. Now in verse 17, we talk about Abraham again. But he knows he can't talk about Abraham without talking about Isaac. And he can't talk about Isaac without talking about Mount Moriah. And you can't talk about all of that without literally talking about Jacob and then Joseph. He basically squeezes in from Genesis 22 all the way through Genesis 50 in the space of about five, six verses. He covers a lot of territory. First, he possesses the promise himself. His faith is tested. What was the testing? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, offer him on a mountain, I will show you. Now, I've, I've read all the very spiritual texts about that. You know, and they say it tells us that the next morning, uh, Abraham rose up early because a good, obedient, faithful Christian wants to obey early, and I think that's absolutely ludicrous. He got up early because he didn't sleep that night. You ever had to face a major surgery, a loved one facing something? You know how hard it is to lay down and rest? I'm fascinated by folks who can sleep when there were stressful things like that are in front of them. He willingly takes Isaac. He builds the altar. He's brought the wood. He's brought the fire. His son has even said, Dad, you got the wood, you got the fire. <laughs> Where's the sacrifice? God will provide. Now, please, my friend, do not, do not buy into the madness of these faithless people who say, well, Abraham just misunderstood. He came out of a culture where you had to sacrifice children. He misunderstood what God wanted him, and he did. Oh, my friend, please. A little humility. Abraham did what he did because God commanded him to do it. Now I'll take it a step further. Don't you dare ever come to me and say, God told me to sacrifice my child on the altar because he didn't. That's a lie out of the pit of hell and smells like smoke. Absolute madness. There is only one who has had to die for us, and that is the Holy Son of God. That is enough. Now this is what Abraham's faith looked like. 
He not only had belief and faith in a supernatural birth, he further believed in a supernatural posterity. Because what the writer of Hebrews tells us is he considered, look at verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. I still marvel at this picture. Abraham literally believed that God said, it's an Isaac your seed will be called. So here is the logic of biblical theology and biblical faith. God said it has to be Isaac. Now God told me to sacrifice Isaac. Only one answer. I'm I'm going to kill my son, burn him to ashes, and God's going to raise him from the dead. Wow. I know we're all sitting here, well, you know Abraham, he, he had that whole botched thing with Sarah, and she's his sister rather than his wife. He wasn't very faithful, and he messed up over here, and he messed up over there. Oh, my friend, does that not give you great and glorious hope that even in the midst of all your mess, God can do things that you simply cannot fathom and imagine? Hmm. And he stops here. He provides a substitute. He looks up and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And he took the ram, offered it up as burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, that's extraordinary, isn't it? But I think it's the setup for what happens next. Is next he talks about Isaac. And we don't get a lot about him. Verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. That's it. That's all you get on Isaac. Because he was traumatized. <laughs> He's still in counseling. My dad tried to kill me. I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> no. Isaac lives by the same faith. And he can summarize it this way. You remember the story, don't you? (laughs) Rebecca's got twin boys in her womb. And what she told, the older will serve the younger. Now, I want you to understand something. Isaac knew that too. He didn't want to submit to that though. Because While he loved both his boys, he liked one a little more than the other. He had more in common with Esau. And so Jacob, along with Mama, pulls the stunt. They trick a blind, hard-of-hearing old man into bestowing the blessing, the inheritance, on the younger son. Now I know you're like me. You read that story your whole life and then when it comes out what's happened, you're thinking, well, Isaac, just revoke. Right? Just say, oh, you lied to me. Instead of that, you get a curse. Now I'm going to give the blessing to Esau. Why did Isaac not do that? He could have. Because Isaac 
submitted his will to what God wanted, even though it was accomplished by trickery. Wow. Now, folks, there's all sorts of things we can do with that by way of application. I'll just let you ponder that for a little while. Do you understand that even whenever bad things happen and people have ill intent, God can still accomplish his purpose that he wants for you without you trying to fix every single thing that happens? I'm not saying there aren't times you should try to undo things that are bad and horrid and evil. You should. But you've got to have a little bit of humility. There are some things you can't undo and shouldn't. And here was one where Isaac submits to God's purpose, though accomplished through evil means. Well, that leads us then to Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Now, this is a very unusual text. You read it as Jacob's coming to the end of his life, and it tells us the text, he leaned on his staff while he declared, he pronounced these blessings on his sons. And he names all the boys, but when he gets to Joseph, he's going to bless the sons. And so Israel, that means Jacob, this is Genesis 48, stretched out his hand, and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. So here's the picture. Oldest, youngest. He does this. And uh, Joseph is going to pronounce, is going to hear the blessing pronounced. And so Joseph said, you, you got him wrong. Firstborn's over here. Here, Dad, let me fix this. You're old. You can't see anymore. Uh Father refused. I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He'll also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, and he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Why did he do that? Because he knew what it was like to be in that status. And rather than do it by trickery, he did it right out in the open. Well, what about Joseph? Joseph knows he's going to die. Genesis 50. I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry me up. Uh, you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And then in Exodus 13, 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And then Joshua, the 24th chapter, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Now I'm going to stop there, and some of you are greatly relieved. But here's what I want you to take from this, brothers and sisters. When you are speaking of your faith and living out your faith before your children and your grandchildren, by all means, do the best you can. All right? By all means, give attention and energy and diligence to do that. 
and teach them the promises. And especially teach them the greatest promise. That if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they shall be saved. Don't try to save them. Not your job. And as a pastor, I can tell you, I've spent a lot of years of my ministry correcting the havoc wreaked by well-intentioned churches and well-intentioned parents pressuring children to do something when God had not been at work in their life to convict and convert. Trust what God will do. Teach them by your living, by your acting, by everything about you, what you actually believe. You don't, folks, you don't have to be perfect. Praise God. You don't have to be perfect. But you do have to be consistent. And what they have to see is a life that's lived in integrity. That just means it's integrated, it's real. What you say you believe and how you live match as much as it can with messed up sinful human beings, it matches. And pray that God be the one who opened the eyes of your children and by his grace your grandchildren. And I've gotten to a place I'm even praying for my not yet great grandchildren and those who should come after. We can convey this Now, it's up to God to make it work. It's not up to us. And oh, my friends, should we die and not see all that we'd hoped to in our children, our grandchildren, or our great-grandchildren, do you understand we can die in faith? Because God doesn't die. (laughs) The Lord Jesus is alive, and the Spirit is still at work, and we have no idea how God could do things that we can't even imagine, even when we're gone. This is the kind of faith we should have, folks. A faith that, yes, believes in successors to that promise and lives in hopes for that. A faith that looks for a city whose builder and designer is God. May the Lord grant that we live such a faithful life. Our Father, take this now, your word, and by your power, by your spirit, by your purpose, apply it to us. Father, we are so readily discouraged, we are so readily uh, hopeless and heartless, Lord, thank you that you act independent of how well we do these things. That you are loving and gracious and always have been. We pray, Father, for grace for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Father, we pray beyond that in terms of the family of faith, the church, not just our nuclear family, not just those who are part of our immediate household and beyond. Lord, we pray that for your church May we as the people of God, the church, convey this to the next generation and the generation after. And whether our names are remembered or forgotten, may the name of the Lord Jesus be exalted. And, O Lord, may the kingdom be expanded. 
And may we all live in hope of future grace and a final home. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.